Hey, welcome to episode 47. As I hopefully do on a regular basis, I want to thank you for clicking that little triangle that points to the right in order to give this a listen. It's been two weeks since the last episode, so thanks for coming back after this week-long self-imposed hiatus. I got slammed with something that knocked me down for the loop. I don't know what it was, but I tested negative for both COVID and the regular flu, even though every symptom I had seemed to match up with both. Trouble breathing deeply, a hoarse and raspy voice. Sounded like Clint Eastwood when he's trying to get amorous, but I couldn't walk ten feet without having to lean against a wall. But I'm coming out of the woods now, and just in time, because I have lots of exciting plans for this show, and maybe even other projects as well. I'll talk more about those when ideas are more solidified, but for now, let me just say that I missed doing this last week, so it's good to be recording again. Last episode, I served up my predictions for who would win at the annual Academy Awards. Since then, the Oscars have come and gone. Looking back at the list of winners, I'm fairly flabbergasted that this was my best year of predicting so far. And now's a good time to publicly thank my friend Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho, who messaged me the following day with this to say, Impressive predictions, my friend. There is one thing about last night's Oscars you didn't predict. Laughing emoji. Indeed. What could be said about Slapgate that hasn't been said already? But that was the next day when he messaged me. Now here we are, and it's been two weeks, and a lot of us are pretty sick and tired of hearing about it at this point. Hell, I was done with it two days later. I'd rather acknowledge the film Coda for scoring Best Picture, and Dune for collecting the most prizes of the evening. A whopping six total, mostly in the technical categories. Best Sound, Visual Effects, Editing, Cinematography, and Production Design. Hans Zimmer was not there to collect his prize for Dune's musical score, so the presenter, Jason Momoa, accepted on his behalf. But speaking of Chris, I'm really excited to be able to say that I had the pleasure of guesting on the Movie Psycho podcast not too long ago. He and I talked about the cult classic film The Princess Bride, so once that's released, check it out. I want to thank Chris once more for having me on. He came on episode 42 of this show when we talked about the 2006 film The Departed. Always a good time talking with him, so again, that's the Movie Psycho. Go give his show a listen. Anywho, this episode's going to be a little different from the ones you've heard over the past couple of months. It's not going to focus on any one particular movie, either recent or from the past. And by the way, notice I didn't say old, because as Lauren Bacall proclaimed to anyone who would listen, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. Like I do every episode, I had to work that quote in somehow. (laughs) And hopefully this time around it wasn't too awkward of a spot to put it in. But no, rather than zeroing in on any one film title, instead, I'll be bringing on a special guest. His name is Brendan Manning. He's an independent filmmaker, and he's also an experienced extra. He can be seen a number of times as a servant in the pilot episode of the HBO series The Gilded Age, written and created by Julian Fellows of Downton Abbey fame. Brendan and I have known each other now for about seven years, and I'll tell you how. He's a former student of mine. That's right, he took my film class back when he was in high school, and when he was in his final semester of his senior year, he and a friend of his, Zach, made a live-action short film together called A Legal Felony. He went on to major in communications at Fitchburg State University here in Massachusetts, and is now actively pursuing his dream of filmmaking. At the beginning of every Oscar season, I can always count on him to email me his Oscar predictions, and I send him mine as well, but I'll let him talk about all of this and more. I should clarify that our talk is pre-recorded, so once it wraps up, stick around because there'll still be a little bit more. I have the results of the weekly polls that I put out there on my socials, as well as the trivia question segment and listener shoutouts. And of course, this week's trivia question and preview of next episode. All of that is coming your way, but first, let's bring Brendan on. So I give you the talented and intelligent Brendan Manning. Brendan, thank you. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to come on Silver Screeners. And it is a real privilege for me to be able to talk to you after all of these years. 
having known you in the context that you and I have known each other all those years back, seeing what you've done since then, it's incredibly impressive. So I'm eager to hear all about it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I, it was back 2016 is when I first was in um, film theory class. And uh, just thinking back, it's been just so long, like so much has happened. Like this is this is pre Moonlight La La Land best picture incident that we're talking. Uh, so it's, it's been that long. Uh, and thank you again, because, you know, some exciting stuff has happened uh, since then. Uh, like I said, I got to partake in the HBO series, uh, The Gilded Age. Uh, and kind of the genesis of that was a few years ago, just on a whim, I applied for and signed up on a couple of casting websites, most notably one called Boston Casting and Backstage. And Backstage is kind of the uh, de facto casting website that a lot of uh, Hollywood and even Broadway uses for extras. Uh, you look on their website and you'll see the logos for Netflix, Disney Channel, uh, HBO in this case. And I got an email saying, there's going to be something shooting in Newport, Rhode Island. If you're interested, send us um, all your measurements and your availability and so on. I sent it to them. Uh, this is December 2020. Fast forward to April, I get a text from someone saying, uh, hey, if you're still interested, we would like you to come in for a costume fitting for this series. Um, and I was like, yes, I am interested. And so I, uh, I'm still like in shock. I don't think it's completely real. In fact, when I first saw, hey, it's from HBO, I thought it was them rejecting me. Uh, but they sent me, uh, a, a, they were like, we just have a few contracts to send your way. And by a few, it turned into six or seven hours of just paperwork. And some of them, uh, it didn't feel real. It says like, as an employee of Warner Brothers. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> um, it, it was just completely foreign. Because at the time I was doing an internship for a, a local TV studio where I was making uh, commercials for local businesses which that was very fun and very educational in its own right. But, and, and even though my role with HBO was relatively small uh, and extra um, in the background, it kind of felt like you were going from high school football to the NFL. It was, it was like on one hand, you were doing everything your, yourself using TV studio cameras uh, and being super DIY to being on a literal film set. Uh, and I, I go in, I have the costume fitting and they, I'm in this big warehouse where they have all these different uh, outfits and they're taking pictures and they have me in these, these things. I've never like been in this sort of environment before. It was, it was, I hear people like argue on the phone, there's millions of dollars on the line. And it was like, this is just a completely foreign and exciting um, environment. And so then right after that, I get an email saying, we need you to quarantine. And th this is a, a mass email. We're going to be putting oh. all of you in. Yeah, this, uh, another thing is this was spring of last year. So COVID was, you know, the vaccine wasn't where it is now. It wasn't fully rolled out yet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, of course, they also wanted proof of vaccination. And stuff. So they, they said, we're going to be putting you in uh, hotels. Is that okay? And I was like, yeah, it, it sure is. So it, it started to feel like less of work, which was what it is, and more of 
just kind of a, 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 a vacation. Um, <laughs> and I just had to sit tight in this hotel room, only 15 minutes away from the set versus like well over an hour before. And another thing that is very important is that there are a lot of on the fly rules that you'll hear right before. Uh, they would email you your call time a day at most, or at least even a few hours before you have to show up. So really, uh, yeah, at least a couple of my times were 6 a.m. I didn't get the email for that till midnight because there's just so much that everyone has to do. And they also give you instructions and you know you have to follow them down to a T. So if they say you have to wear long black socks, you better drive down to Walmart and get some because yeah, you have to show up exactly as they expected to. My character was called a footman, uh, which if you're not aware, is it's kind of like an understudy of a, of a butler. These old money houses, it was very prominent in the 1800s. We have dozens of footmen all around these big lavish estates that would do everything for the family. And that, that was my role. And one thing with them is that they're clean shaven. So that was the very first thing I did uh, in the morning was just make sure I was just completely clean shaven. Um, I head down to the, the set about 15 minutes early because, you know, it's one of those things where if you're earlier on time, if you're on time, you're late. I, I showed up with somebody else and they even the, the production assistant said to us, uh, we appreciate you guys coming early because it's better for them to have you and not need you than need you and not have you. So uh, they put us all in like a tent, like a big wedding tent. We get our costumes on. They load us onto a bus and bring us to these. They, they filmed a lot in these authentic uh, Newport like estates and these big mansions and they put you in holding. And that's one thing about being an extra. Uh, the phrase hurry up and wait is very prevalent uh, because 80 to 90% of your day is spent waiting. And so they put us all in an area called holding. In this case, it was just a sunroom that they weren't using in the scene. They had us all together. And, you know, if, if you are lucky enough to be a part of one of these, these shoots, bring a book, bring your homework. There's a lot of downtime. Um, don't be afraid to talk to people. And a production assistant would call you in and say, okay, you, 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 we need you in the scene. And my first scene was a dinner scene. And uh, I was with four other footmen at, at the very end, they added a fifth. So five footmen altogether. And we are all in the scene. However, because of how long it took and how many different angles there were, not all of us were in the same set all at once. Uh, I don't believe at any one moment I was with the rest of them. Uh, and that's when it hits you. It doesn't really, really hit you when you're filling out contracts, when you're staying in the hotels, when you're getting your costume on, when you're doing everything. Once you get onto the set, and in this case, it was blacked out windows, completely like insulated. Uh, there was smoke. It was very atmospheric. So in this case, it, it felt like you were just stepping into like something that wasn't real. Uh, and again, because I... I'm used to doing a lot of stuff myself when it comes to filmmaking. Uh, I was not used to looking next to me and seeing somebody with a $150,000 camera. So they have you stand in a specific spot in my case, because I'm a footman. Uh, and another thing is uh, Mike Engler, the director of the show, who also directed a, a lot of the series Downton Abbey. And I believe he directed the movie Downton Abbey. He was there uh, directing that scene. And as an extra you don't get much direction from the director himself. 
most of your direction comes from the production assistants. Uh, occasionally, he would ask me or somebody else, like, step into frame a little bit more, but not really much more than that. And the reason is that the director, he's the leader of the set. He is far too busy to be talking to dozens of extras, or in this case, a few extras, uh, whereas he has to be concerned with how the lighting looks, how the main cast is doing, the cinematographer, probably fielding calls from investors and producers over in Hollywood. Uh, so I doubt he would have the time to like thoroughly go into it with me or any of the other uh, extras. And it was fantastic seeing him work. He was a very professional, very motivated. Uh, and even for something like a dinner scene, which the series has plenty of, Great series, by the way. Uh, it, it, he seemed just super, super invested in what the scene was. And again, yeah, most of your direction comes from uh, the production assistants. So it would be something as simple, like, okay, and this, and they would give you your motivation it, it, for something as simple as standing there. They, they are the ones who are also super professional, and they bring the main cast in. And again, that's when it really hits you because the, you're looking at at this table full of people and you recognize people who have worked in a Marvel movie or um, in this case uh, I finally get to talk about it Nathan Lane was in the series and uh, I looked over and I see there's Nathan Lane and you know oh, it doesn't wow. it doesn't I'm sorry I just said oh wow <laughs> yeah yeah um, that was my kind of internal reaction but at the same time it it did, doesn't hit you like a ton of bricks and it's mainly because you're not allowed to talk to the main cast or crew for the same reasons. They're just far too busy memorizing lines, doing everything like that. It works on an only speak when spoken to sort of rule. Uh, so I did actually see people get spoken to for talking to the main cast. And occasionally they would come up to us and speak to us and say, how's your day going? And, you know, you have a little back and forth with it there because, you know, you want to be friendly on set. Uh, that's that's how you get more opportunities is, is networking and everything so you know I in total in the series I was probably if you combine all the scenes that I was in probably two full minutes uh versus three full days of work uh but I was completely and utterly fine with that uh the second day of shooting to this as of right now is the best filmmaking experience I've ever had um we shot for about 16 hours and um I could have gone probably two more hours because it was just, you just look at everything that's happening, especially on a, a big budget series like that, like this, there were real horses pulling carriages. There was sets completely lit by candle or like uh, torches uh, at night. And yeah. And another thing with it is that you, you become fast friends with, especially the people you're working with. Like I said, I was in a core group of four, four other guys and, you know, we became very quick friends. So, you know, we, we all dressed exactly the same. Uh, and so there are times where the main cast, like take pictures with us. Cause we were always seen together, always like bantering with each other. The main and cast would take pictures of you. The main cast uh, did take pictures of us at times. Yeah. They oh, were, they were like, oh, you guys get together. Um, so hopefully so cool. those will show up on Instagram. Harry Richardson. I, I remember went up to us. He was a, a prominent actor in the show uh, and, and was talking to us. And yeah, you, you kind of, you just look at everything that's going on and there, there are outdoor scenes that for a scene that's just super quick in the show, it, it almost looks like just like a canvas painting of just how everything's composed and 
you know, they would have drones and even just stuff you don't think about. For instance, uh, on the second day we shot in a mansion that was on the, the Newport coastline, there were boats like half a mile out making sure that like regular people in boats or drones or anything wouldn't go onto set. So there's so much that goes into these productions. And like I said before, how everybody uh, is like close and um, like talking to each other. There's also some rules that go into that. What I mean by that is, you know, you have all these different departments, you have background, you have the main cast, you have the crew. And it's best if when it comes to like what you're doing on set, you talk to mainly who you're supposed to like, for instance, how it will go, as you uh, probably know, how it'll go is that like a studio doesn't own a lot of their own equipment, they rent it. And they a lot of times they'll rent it from somebody who will operate the uh, equipment on set. So let's say they, they hire a sound engineer, he'll also part of his fee will be he'll let lend his, uh, his equipment. Please do not touch what does not belong to you. Even if you think that you you want to help, this is, this is something that I, I, I did see before is somebody thinking they're helping by bringing a C stand or a tripod and they'll get snapped at right away. It's best that you just, just, it's, it's almost like a very just submissive uh, role is that you have a, a very specific things to do. Just do that. And don't, don't try to go hundred percent, even if you're 110%, even if your intentions are uh, noble. Uh, it's, you know, best to just stick with what you know. Basically, it sounds like a atmosphere of do as you're told when you're told. Is that? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> um, and, but at the same time, it's not even like trying to bring down the crew saying like, oh, they're not friendly. I talked to a lot of crew members. I saw people who had Irishman crew jackets on or they were talking about how they worked on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and you know, they, they would Ooh. tell stories about that. And uh, you realize that a lot of these people, even like the actors who are in these fancy costumes, they'll talk about how they have a test due in a couple of days. So it's, it's a very friendly environment. Um, there are rules on a set where you actually have to, to an extent, get along with everybody and you can't be rude. But even beyond that, it just, it was a very friendly environment, um, very rigid environment, like I said, but a very friendly environment regardless and you just see how hardworking everybody is. There was a, a time near the end of the day where they said, hey, we need a 20-foot tall, 30-foot wide green screen set up in five minutes. And the crew will be like, yeah, no problem. So they'll put it together. They'll like put everything inside. They'll bolt it and screw everything. And uh, it was incredible. And again, this is hour 14 or 15 in the day. And it was just the, the work ethic that I, I saw on that set was, at least in terms of filmmaking, nothing that I've ever seen before. Well, you use the words friendly and rigid, and I would imagine that that's exactly what you need, especially if it's a multi-million dollar production. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have all these balls that you're keeping up in the air, you know, whether it's the director or the production team, whoever it is. I would just imagine that, that you would need to have that rigidity in order to have a well-oiled machine to put out there the best possible product you can because as you said you know with the investors and everything else i mean there's a lot on the line when you have that kind of a you have a schedule to maintain you have a you have a cast you have a crew to uh you know to see to it that they have what they need 
in order to be able to do their jobs well. So I'd imagine there's just a lot that goes into it. There absolutely is. Like I, there, there were two to three main production assistants assigned to my group. And the group was probably my footman and 10 other uh, extras, but you, you also talk to tons and tons of other people and there is, they're able to answer any question that you have just like you, you can never ask a dumb question on the set. Like for example, a couple of times because the initial direction I got maybe wasn't like super clear. I would go up to a production or I would say to a production assistant near me. So am I walking out with them? And they'd say no. And thank goodness I did. I did because then I would have walked out and potentially ruined the shot. Uh, and that was one of the main fears that I had. Again, like you said, there are millions of dollars on the line and it's a very rigid environment, but you get that feeling. And even if you're not somebody who is going to pursue this as a, as a career, you also are just super involved with what you're doing. If, if maybe you're not somebody who's interested in acting or filmmaking or production assistance as time goes on, uh, and you're just doing this because maybe there was a local casting call, you're still super invested in what you're doing. I, I met people who one of the closer uh, footmen that I met his main thing is that he's a, a private chef that he does parties for. Uh, so uh -huh. acting and filmmaking wasn't part of his repertoire at all. And, but he was just as invested as me or anyone else. That's great when you have that degree of commitment to what you're doing, because if you're just going to do it half-heartedly, then why bother doing it at all? Exactly. Especially since there are probably for every person like yourself who is called back, there are probably God knows how many who wish they got the same text that you did or the, or the same call. Yeah, so yeah. where do you see this headed for you? I mean, is this something that you'd consider doing again or actually let's take a step backwards here in college, you studied what, and you mentioned that you have, you know, that you make your own film, the commercials for these, for these companies. Where do you see this headed for you as far as whether or not you'd be open to returning to whether it's the Gilded Age or just with Boston Casting or any other uh, any other agency? What, what are your yeah. short term goals or long term goals for this? So I'm not opposed to doing uh, this sort of work again, uh, especially on the Gilded Age. Uh, HBO, if you're listening, I'm available. I'm ready. Um, <laughs> but I, I went to school at Pittsburgh State University in Pittsburgh, Mass., major in communications, concentrated in film. Uh, while I was there, I did a plethora of things, but I mainly wrote and directed my own short films. Uh, you can find a lot of those on my YouTube channel, uh, Make the Lion Films. Uh, it's make-the-lion films. Thank you for letting me uh, uh, plug right there. Absolutely. Um, and one of the, the internship that I got was through college and it was making my own commercials. And uh, I wouldn't consider myself an actor. I am open to doing more roles. However, like the, the goal is to eventually direct uh, full time. But for me, it was learning this new craft because A, it, it gets you on a film set. And like I said, there's no better teacher than being there and seeing everything. And it, it also like you then know what an actor would go through. There, there are a lot of examples that you'll hear uh, on a main set of, a director won't be an actor's director. And so they won't understand like the nuances and the, the struggles of being an actor. And I feel like it's something I, I in high school and in college a bit, I, I did theater for similar reasons as I want to see what it's like to be an actor. So if a 
a problem would eventually come on set, I would know how they're feeling and how I would uh, deal with it. I remember that you being involved in the theater society at the high school. I also remember your senior year, how you made as your senior project, you made your own film. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, in high school, they, they allow you to have a senior project where for your last quarter, I believe it is, you get to, instead of going to normal classes, you would work on a specific project. Some people would shadow a doctor if they want to go into the medical field. Some people would work at uh, a veterinarian if they want to go into that field. And what I chose to do with my friend, my good friend, Zach, who is more than likely listening right now. Uh, hello, Zach. Uh, is that we, <laughs> um, we wrote and directed our own short film called Illegal Felony. Uh, it's, it can be found on the YouTube channel as well. He wrote it, I directed it, and uh, that was another thing in theater is, you know, I had now had a network of actors that I could borrow, uh, and not even just actors, but crew members. I, I met people in it who did makeup, so I had people on set who were doing makeup for us, uh, and, you know, you can, you can almost take those those things you would learn in theater and eventually use them on like a, a bigger set. Those, those fund fundamental rules and those goals of befriending people in theater and eventually offer to have them be in like short films. You could extend that to feature film work. If you're doing smaller work and then you go into bigger budget, bigger budget, excuse me, uh, work. I, I'm reminded of how James Cameron used to make Roger Corman films and when he was working on Titanic, he was talking to Roger Corman and said, I'm just doing exactly what I did with you just with on a bigger scale. And that, that's how I, I was sort of feeling at the time. And when I do films now, that's how I feel now. Well, if it's OK with you, I would like to let anybody know who's listening that they can find you in the pilot episode of The Gilded Age at the following time markers. I wrote them down here. You can first be seen at 41 minutes and 10 seconds in, 41 minutes and 45 seconds in, 42 minutes and 32, 43 and 55, 46 and 32, and 47 and 30. So, so this is the scene when Bertha and her daughter, when they're introduced to Marion and Ada, as well as the scene when Larry and Van Ryan's son and... Uh, another character when they enter for, for dinner and they're saying, do we really have to play cinch? I'm afraid we have no choice but to play cinch. That's the question I have for you. Do you know what cinch is? I looked at it. I think it's like a card game or a board game, something like that. Something that died with the 1800s. I do want to thank you actually for, for giving those timestamps because that is a question I may have or may not have been asked quite a few times because, you know, feel free, whoever's listening to watch the full episode, but it's a feature length episode. I think it clocks in at just under an hour and a half. So if you're looking to just have a Leo once upon a time in Hollywood moment of snapping and looking at the TV, definitely save yourself some time with, with some timestamps there. But the show itself, like you said, I agree with you. That, that was a pretty good, I've, I've not gone beyond the pilot episode, mm. but it was, it's, it looks pretty promising and it's been renewed for a season two, hasn't it? It has, yes. And it, it's going to continue shooting in Newport and uh, also in New York, where uh, a majority of the show does play, take place in New York. I believe they they shoot on 
it's either the Warner Brothers or it's a it's a Warner Brothers and Universal co-production. So I believe they shoot a lot of it on one of their backlots. So they have backlots in New York as well as out west. Yes, yeah. I mean, they're they're not as big, but uh, I've I've seen some behind the scenes footage. I I haven't personally been to any of the New York shoots. I was mostly just in Newport for the days that I was doing it. But uh, it looks like they either constructed like a smaller scale set because there are some wide shots I know that were expanded with CG. But yeah, you, know, uh, you look at it and it's a very very lavish high production uh, shoot, and I. And eternally grateful to, to be given that opportunity. It was my first proper introduction to like a the world of like Hollywood filmmaking. And to start off with something as big as like a, an HBO series was insane. <laughs> and with a name like Julian Fellows attached to it, you know, you're going to have a piece written that is going to deliver. Yes, ab- absolutely. It's there are a lot of reliable seals of quality and especially when you see the the main cast i think i saw some behind the scenes footage where nathan lane was saying like throw a rock and you'll find a tony winner or an emmy winner and um (laughs) you know you you have a show with cynthia nixon christine baranski nathan lane himself and just a, a wide cast of so many different actors tackling a uh, a very interesting subject matter that uh, the Gilded Age of America, which I, I don't think has been in and of itself properly tackled in either feature, feature films or television. I think a lot of the American television and film industry, at least as far as what I've seen, as far as mainstream stuff that takes a look at costume period pieces, we always tend to, I don't know if this is accurate or not, I mean, I don't know what you think, but we always seem to tend to stories from Europe, you know, Jane Austen or Downton Abbey, or, you know, probably because there's much more history there than there is here, but seeing the Gilded Age, seeing American history in the same vein as something like The Great Gatsby, for example, with old money versus new money, New York City and just industrialism and all of that. It's it's interesting to to have that kind of front and center as opposed to our uh, <laughs> looking across the pond and stealing stories from <laughs> stealing stories from uh, from Europe. Yeah, a bulk of Disney's catalog for a good 80 years there was mostly just Europe. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. When it comes to stories, period pieces in America, it almost seems like it just starts with the dawn of World War II. Uh, and maybe you'll get uh, a Mel Gibson, The Patriot, or uh, a, a Glory, or uh, mainly like war films. But yeah, in terms of like historical films, outside of an occasional biopic, yeah, you don't get too much. A lot of the history tackles with uh, the mid to late 20th century. Uh, World War II, especially Vietnam, uh, just just a lot of war films or films that deal with like the aftermath of big events. Yeah, it's something that's a big spectacle, something that has a lot of a lot of that dramatic. Th- not that there's not a dramatic thrust with these kinds of shows, but these kinds of shows are more deliberately paced as opposed to being, you know, these you know, stage recreations of you know real life battles or wars. You know, something that actually has you know, some, something beyond the big visual spectacle, you know, there's more, there's more nuance, as you said, there's more nuance, there's more subtlety. You have the chance to actually get involved in a character's long story act, as opposed to knowing that there's a chance that like in a war movie, they'll be killed off by the final reel. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's something I think is, uh, I, I liked about this show is that 
they talk quite a bit about the Civil War because this show takes place about 20 years or so after the Civil War, but it's in the 1880s, which there wasn't a major conflict until about 30 years later. So it's interesting that they took this era, which you don't see too much represented and you don't hear about as much as like Civil War or World or World War One, just this this period of time um, where there wasn't any sort of global either financial or wartime reasons. Uh, and like I said, it was almost almost underrepresented in a in a sense. And I, I think the show does a very good way of representing it. It's very detailed and it seems very researched. Researched, yeah, definitely. Um, I think one thing that struck me in a good way about the pilot episode is that it did not reinvent or romanticize the history of the era. You have characters of color. You have the struggles that went along with, you know, what happens when they enter the home of, you know, the wealthy Caucasian old money. You know, it explored themes like that, that you wouldn't have seen, I would imagine, 30, 40 years ago, at least not depicted in the same way. No, you're absolutely right. And it was done in a very detailed and it wasn't as the series goes on, you see much more of that. So it isn't just a one-off anecdote for the pilot or maybe a couple episodes. It's a it's a continuing story throughout the series. And I, I thought it was great the way they did it. It was very well written. And when you have Audrey McDonald appearing, then you know you have something that you're not going to be able to take your eyes off on screen. <laughs> Absolutely. She's Fortunately, phenomenal. I was not on set with her at times. I think I heard rumors that there were, but you know, maybe next time. <laughs> so let's pivot towards your thoughts on the Academy Awards, which were, as of this recording, a week ago tonight. It's Sunday right now, Sunday, April 3rd. We've had a week to digest all of the nominees, all of the winners, some of the highlights from the ceremony, some of the lowlights. And I'm curious, did the awards, now in terms of the categories that saw the Oscars go to the recipients, did it turn out the way you were hoping? Overall, I would say it was a mostly satisfying night. I do a predictions list every year. I got about half of them correct. Uh, my favorite movie of the year was Dune, and I was very happy to see that it swept. To my knowledge, I don't believe a movie has swept the Oscars like it did since Mad Max Fury Road did back in 2016. Right. Um, I haven't seen every Best Picture nominee just yet, but uh, I will say just maybe this is a bias, but I, I'm happy that Coda won because it was a film that was made and produced in Gloucester, Massachusetts. So, you know, it's uh, solidifying the Massachusetts film industry that much more that there were the upsets that I had were mainly with minor technical ones. Uh, this year, caution design went to Cruella. I would have preferred if it went to Dune, whereas other ones like this year, editing went to Dune. I would have actually preferred if it went to Tick, Tick, Boom. I, I thought that the editing, editing in that was superb. I thought it was very kinetic. Uh, and even other ones, like uh, I, I was happy that Ariana DeBose won for Best Supporting Actress. I believe it's the first time that the same character has won in the same category twice, once for the original West Side Story and uh, once for the remake. And her speech, in my opinion, was one of the best, if not the best of the night, hers and uh, the supporting actor for Coda. I, I'm blanking on his name. Oh, Troy Coza. Coza, yeah. Yeah, so like Ariana DeBose, in my opinion, had 
one of the best, if not that's the best speeches in the night. And the other was Troy Kutzer winning, which I also believe he's the second deaf person ever to win an Academy Award. The first being Marley Matlin. His speech I, I thought was great. I, I thought there wasn't any sort of language barrier with the, uh, the translation. And I, I thought it, he had definitely a lot to say. You know, a lot of the other speeches you see are your standard, thank you, mom, thank you, dad, thank you to the crew. Uh, but those were two, in my opinion, that stood out for the night. I think that's what a lot of Academy Award winners could learn a lot from, is that it is a show that is broadcast globally. And if they want people to continue to keep tuning in, make the speeches entertaining. When you go into this long litany of, and I understand why you would, but when you go into this long litany of names of agents and your management team and family and friends, it's all well and good. But if that's all you're going to say, then it's not going to capture the audience's attention. You know, make a joke. Uh, I always go back to what Kate Winslet did saying, I'm not sure where you're sitting, dad, but whistle or something so that I know where you are. And then all of a sudden you hear him whistling and she gives him a shout out, you know, something like a personal moment like that would be great, you know? Exactly. Like some standout ones that I can just think off the top of my head, uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck when they won for best screen for animal hunting, mainly because they were 25 and uh, they, they, they were kind of a rambling thank you too. But I, I think just their, their energy on, on stage is something that everybody like just loved. Uh, Roberto Benini for one, he won for life is beautiful. He was doing flips as he was going on stage and, Colin Firth, I, I, I forget exactly what he said, but I remember his speech being like funny. So yeah, li- like you said, uh, you're not going to really capture uh, the imaginations of viewers if you just say, thank you, mom, thank you, dad. Uh, this, this is a, a great honor versus if you actually have something to say, or at the very least, if you don't have something to say, at least try to be entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> I can remember at the Golden Globes, this is probably going back about 10, 15 years ago, Hugh Laurie won the Golden Globe for the series House. And when he was accepting his award, he said that he had so many people he wanted to thank that there would only be three lucky names he would mention. And he had everybody's names all folded up and all of these individual slips of paper in his pocket. And he, you can find this on YouTube. And he pulls out three pieces of paper one at a time and he reads them out. He reads off the names and he says, OK, I'd like to thank one of them was his limo driver, I think. One of them was, I don't remember who the other two were, but you know, he was very wry, very sarcastic, and he totally played up to the crowd and to an extent to the TV audience as well. So you're getting your thank yous in, you're providing the entertainment factor. That's the magic combination that all too often some of the winners miss out on. They ab- it absolutely should be more encouraged. I- I'm also, since you brought up the Golden Globes, I'm reminded of Sasha Baron Cohen's when he won for the original Borat film. Um, <laughs> I do remember I there's not too much that I can, uh, would be able to uh, to cite, but you can find it on YouTube. Uh, it is a, quite a memorable film, especially if you quite a memorable speech. And if you've seen the film, then you'll uh, you, you'll know. Exactly. <laughs> One thing that I wanted to bring up and I would love to get your opinions on is how the Academy has addressed uh, that they want to pre-record the minor technical awards and they would throughout the night sprinkle in uh, these edited down speeches. They said it was an, in an effort to make more room for the songs, the musical numbers and the speeches. Uh, however, at least in my opinion, those are some of the more standard and lesser memorable moments of the night. 
Uh, I wasn't a fan of it. I thought it was it was very clunky how they would just have a, a best editing speech and it would just be very chopped. I'm hoping that it will just come down to a, a, a one-off experiment this year. And, but the thing that confuses me the most is that they said it it's in an effort to boost ratings as the ratings have been rocky the last decade or so. But the, the event is still cable exclusive, uh, say for if you have YouTube TV, something like that. If they want to boost their ratings, I, I don't see why they wouldn't make it streamable. Uh, I'm reminded of the video game awards. The game awards completely destroyed the Oscars last year. Last year, the Oscars only averaged about 8 million viewers. Uh, the game awards got 80 million. And it's because you can find it everywhere. There are streams on YouTube, streams on Twitch, streams on other streaming services. And it, it almost feels like the Academy is due for a modernization in that respect. The Academy is, well, the existence of the Academy is something that I'm very much for, but yes, really, yes, I mean, we need to have, you know, that kind of an organization to acknowledge excellence in filmmaking, morale and support each other's creative efforts. I am all for that. With that said, the short answer to your question is, those categories that were shoved out the door and given out before the ceremony began while their acceptance speeches were overshadowed by the celebrities, the so-called name faces walking the red carpet. I'm t I was totally against that. There is no movie without an editor. There is no movie without you know, all of those categories. So the fact that it just perpetuated the myth that there is this hierarchy of importance with all the different branches of filmmaking in principle, totally against it. Now they stated that the reason, like you said, the reason for this was to try to attract more viewers. They said, we wanted to be sure that we stick within the parameters of the running time of the show. It didn't work. I mean, this turned out to be the longest or one of the longest in recent memory. And we didn't have time for, you know, the acceptance speeches of the people in these categories, but we did have time to see Oscar fan favorite, <laughs> which really that Twitter was polls, Twitter polls. Like we, yeah. they made time for that. I get it. Hey, maybe if we do it this way, we'll pull in viewers. They'll see what the poll results were. They voted on Twitter, but at the expense of eight different professions, that were all, you know, devalued. And basically, you know, actions speak louder than words and they can be told, oh, we can't make a movie without you. And well, <laughs> then give them the respect that they're doing. I just found it very disrespectful, to be honest with you. Had it achieved its ostensible mission of shortening the show, then maybe a justification could be made, but I really hope that they don't do this again next year. I, I'm completely, I agree with everything you said. I, I, you're you're right of how the 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 show was just as long as ever in, in this case more long than usual longer than usual yeah i think it's completely it's due for a modernization and this isn't even the first time that they've tried something like this back in 2019 they tried something very similar if not the same thing and they were torn apart on twitter and uh, on social media how they wanted to air uh have commercial breaks during some of the speeches to speed up the show and people like Guillermo del Toro and Alfonso Cuaron uh and Cuaron himself won best director that year was saying that this was terrible how they weren't going to show up you think they would have learned their lesson when that happened but I suppose not 
So yeah, I, I believe even the Emmys this year were, you could watch them on HBO Max. So the Oscars are aired on ABC, which is parent company is Disney, which owns both Hulu and Disney Plus. So there's plenty of options for them to boost their ratings and their viewership. But instead, they opt for more musical numbers. Uh, the ones that I personally find the most grating and pandering is when they bring regular people in. I don't think that they did this that this year, but there are times where they'll go into a movie theater full of people and throw candy at people. Oh, um, they did that, I think, two or three years ago. I remember that. Really am not a fan of that. It almost just it, it on top of not having any real jokes because an average person would freeze up if they have a camera pointed in their face and have Bradley Cooper there giving them a chocolate bar. It also just comes off as very like, I'm above you. And is, isn't it funny how this person who's not in my social class, I'm throwing candy at it's, it's weird. And like, I, I don't think they did anything like that this year. And hopefully they don't because those are the ones I, I find just just the worst. Well, anything that panders to the very audience that you're trying to hang on to, you know, it's counterintuitive if you're going to be condescending like that, like literally throwing, <laughs> throwing, yeah. a, th throwing you a bone, you know, um, didn't they a few years ago, maybe five, six years ago, they even tried an experiment where some of the technical categories, they awarded them in their seats. Yeah. Something like that. Something they, like that. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's, they always try to like experiment just a little bit, but they still follow the same rigid formula as they always do. Uh, you know, you take like a, an Oscar showing from 60 years ago at its core, it's very similar to what we have now. Then, uh, like I said, newer uh, award shows, which have popped up in the last 10 years, completely destroy uh, the Oscars. Christopher Nolan himself didn't go to the Oscars last year and, and instead showed up at the Game Awards. And when, when you have big A-list, like celebrity directors going to other shows versus yours, that's a sign where there there's maybe needs to be a small, like a clean of house. Maybe there needs to be like a, a newer think tank. Yeah. And I don't think that bringing Tony Hawk in as a presenter is going to do it. Yeah. Or, or bringing up like the, the hottest people. What was that? That was like, that. it was also, it, there, it, it didn't even go anywhere. Not only was it like a, a, a joke that wasn't terribly funny, but it was a joke that didn't really have a punchline. It, it just ha was like a half-baked idea almost. I think so much of it is just the pressure to please the network. And, you know, as I'm sure you know, it was not the Academy's call to get those eight categories out the door. That was ABC saying to them, you know, do something. And it just seemed like there were just so many missed opportunities. I mean, you have this tribute to 60 years of James Bond. You have Judy Dench right there in the audience. You couldn't have had her say something, any, or at the very least, they couldn't somehow give her a shout out in the audience. And even if it's just a simple gag and then getting her reaction, instead she just sat there along with everybody else and was not involved in it. And who are the people up there talking about it? You know, Tony Hawk and the others, you know, the other, it's like, there's so many questionable decisions, like head scratches. And I think that one of the major problems in terms of the general interests of people, us plebeians who are just, you know, the, the viewers, I think a lot of the problem is that for the past number of years now, the movies that have been nominated are just not easily accessible, no. which is kind of ironic. If you think about it, you would think over the past couple of years with 
you know, people being home more and with streaming, you would think that that would have done something to make movies more accessible. But if you have, like you said, if you have one streaming service over another, you know, if you don't have Hulu or if you don't have Apple TV, then you're not going to see that movie unless it's available at your local Redbox kiosk or you subscribe to that channel or, you know, what have you. And I'm not saying that the wrong movies have been nominated. I just think that there's got to be something, they've got to shake up the way that they make these movies available so that people who are watching at home have something, oh, yeah, I saw that movie, or, oh, I've been wanting to see that movie, as opposed to, okay, here are 10 Best Picture nominees. I think I've heard of two of them, eight of them I'd never heard of before. You're absolutely right. Sometimes it feels like homework, almost. Uh, There are a few quite a few Oscar movies that I've seen over the years where it just, I watched this just because it was nominated for um, a a few categories and it didn't leave any lasting impression. And you're also correct in that it's not the easiest to find a lot of these films. Like I didn't have Apple TV last year and a movie that I always wanted to see was the animated film Wolfwalkers. And I was just annoyed. I was like, well, I don't have access to this. I watched it yesterday for the first time because I just buckled down and bought a uh, a month of Apple Plus, and I loved it. it I I thought I like this would have been what I would have picked. Uh, this uh, I, I mean, it didn't go to uh, Wolf Walkers last year. It went to Soul, but I, I think that there could be more of an effort to try to make a lot of these films more accessible, even just with something like West Side Story, for example. As of right now, there. It's both available on HBO Max and Disney Plus, and I feel like even though it's it's a a Fox Disney co-production, so it's completely owned by Disney, there there was probably some deal of trying to get more eyes on it. So maybe there could be something where for a month or two, one service would have all the Best Picture nominees, just just in a way for it to be more pro-consumer. Because having a a film on more than one streaming service. Batman Begins, I think, is like on three of the major ones right now. It's a pro-consumer move, and you would need to do a lot of those because there, there's just so many that, yeah, the mainstream probably would only recognize like 15 to 20% of them. And I don't think, yeah, bringing Tony Hawk or uh, referencing Encanto is going to bring in the, like, the, the audiences that you would want. And that was actually kind of a slap in the face to the songwriting team of Encanto is that the song that's more popular, you know, just in in terms of, you know, what's at the top of the chats is we don't talk about Bruno, the song that was not nominated. And they decided to have it performed at the Oscars because, oh, I mean, was that a matter of, oh, that's the one we should have nominated, so let's perform it anyway? It's like, where's the precedent with that? It's like, so every other songwriter for any movie whose song was not nominated, does this mean that they also have a shot at getting their song performed at the art? And then the thing of it is, is that they rewrote the lyrics to We Don't Talk About Bruno. <laughs> and the lyrics were all about how wonderful the Oscars are. And it's like, oh. <laughs> Special treatment, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then, like you said, uh, they, need a new, they need a new think tank if they expect people to, to keep tuning in. Yeah. You know, every year, of course, yeah, there there's a few uh, movies that don't get any nominations that you would like to. For instance, a couple that I thought uh, last night in Soho, I, I would have liked if that got a production design Oscar. I, I think it was worthy of at least a nomination, especially uh, the French Dispatch, I believe, should have got production design, costume mm-hmm. design uh, and cinematography. Maybe not wins, but nominations because the nomination itself can boost your career significantly. I don't know if you would like to talk about it or not. 
I know exactly what you can. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure if you're aware, but there was an incident about halfway through the show uh, where the actor, uh, up for best leading actor, Will Smith, he went up and smacked Chris Rock, then won best actor. Yeah, I know. Uh, it, it was really, really quick. Uh, <laughs> the audio cut out and everything. It was just, it was probably a gag. Um, but then a couple hours later, he won best actor. And with me, I, I saw it happened and I thought, well, there was just so much that else that happened in the night. Uh, let's go on to anywhere on the internet and see discourse. Oh, hey, Warner Brothers just put out a tweet about Dune winning sound design. All the comments are about this incident. Okay, let's go on to any other sub, any chat room, any comment section, any video. 100% of the discourse is about what happened. And that is one of my bigger takeaways is, you know, this is a move, a, a celebration of these movies uh, in any other year, Dune and Coda would dominate the discussion completely. And it's not. No, that's a real, it's a shame. It's a shame because these movies are deserving of the of the recognition that they're getting. Coda was my favorite out of the Best Picture nominees that I saw, and not just for the local interest. And the fact that it won Best Picture, and I loved, by the way, the dynamic between Lady Gaga and Liza Minnelli. I'm not saying I'm a big fan necessarily, quote unquote, of either one of them, fan with a capital F, but you know, both extremely talented people. I may not go for their music, but you can't deny you know their charisma, their talent. And uh, they're both Academy Award winners themselves. And just the way that they bounced off of each other. There was, there was a lot. It was good to see a lot of positive reaction to that. You know, Liza Minnelli, she's in a wheelchair. And Lady Gaga, there's nothing, there's nothing inauthentic about their exchange with each other. She gives Liza Minnelli the opportunity to read off the Best Picture winner. The Coda cast came up. You know, everyone's applauding using ASL, which is great to see. They give their speeches. And as you said, Molly Matlin, Troy Kotsa, you know, two Academy Award winning actors playing husband and wife in this film, seeing everybody on stage. It was just a great it was nice to see a movie win Best Picture that was not a downer. You don't need to feel bad to be a good movie. You know what I mean? You don't yeah, have to yeah. walk away feeling depressed or bleak or jaded or cynical to be a good movie. And I'm, there, there have been some heartwarming films of, you know, in recent years that have won Best Picture, controversially in some cases, you know, Driving Miss Daisy, for example, or Green, Green, Book. Book, Green Book was, uh, that was a rather contentious win for some people. So then I'm not saying that every single Best Picture winner is a downer, but that does tend to be the norm. You know, these movies I just mentioned are more the exceptions than the norm. So it was nice to see a movie that was actually uplifting. It was nice to have that be celebrated. I'm not saying that the power of the dog was unskillfully made in any respect. I was actually pretty shocked actually that it walked away with one Oscar and one Oscar only for Jane Campion. But it's such a high category too. You don't see that too often of just best director. So the only time that I can think of where that happened was The Graduate back in 67. That's right, yeah. Uh, Mike Nichols. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think those are the only two films to get best director or nothing else. I yeah, I believe you're right. 
But like I said, it was, it was just nice to see something affirming as opposed to a film that has an extremely well-written, well-acted story, well-edited and beautifully shot and all of that with, you know, with the viewer walking away with a sense of, okay, well, now I need to pick me up. <laughs> so, which yeah. is the way you feel after Power of the Dog and, you know, that's the way you feel after Nomadland and, you know, you just look, you look back at all, you know, Parasite, you know, these are all exquisite movies, but, you know, they're downers. So it was nice to avoid that for once. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of, I've been watching a lot of Batman-related content recently after the new Robert Pattinson film came out. And there was a lot of discussion about the Christopher Nolan film. And as you probably remember, in the wake of the Christopher Nolan films, there was a lot of um, self-serious uh, superhero films that came out around that time. Man of Steel, the amazing, the first Amazing Spider-Man movies that tried to capture that gritty, dark, taking yourself very serious tone, and it didn't resonate with audiences the same way that the Nolan films did. And it, it almost feels like I just want to shake somebody and say, like, just because it's serious does not mean that that automatically makes it good. Uh, you look at examples like the film Suicide Squad uh, from five, six years ago, didn't really capture the hearts and minds of many whereas you look at the new james gunn film uh and it looks like it's way more beloved way more well well received and it has a much lighter goofier tone uh so you're absolutely right in terms of like just because something is serious doesn't exactly mean like or or is like a downtrodden or it's super darker grittier means that it necessarily is better in a sense well, that's just it. And the thing of it is, is that Suicide Squad has more Academy Award wins than Nightmare Alley. Yeah. <laughs> and Don't Look Up. <laughs> then, you know, a lot of this year's Best Picture nominees. And that was, what was that Best Makeup, I think that was, right? Best Makeup, yeah. Uh, for the, Let me rephrase. The Oscar-winning Suicide Squad, as it <laughs> to without gritted teeth. Um, I will say that there are a lot of movies that the Oscars brings to light uh, despite what I was saying earlier about like some of these films being like homework, there are a lot of movies that I wouldn't have known otherwise without having watched the Oscars. Like, like I said, I haven't seen Cody yet, but I will be today. Uh, not only because it won Best Picture and it not like it's obligatory, it seems like a genuinely like a, a great movie. Something I, I would I'm going to quickly touch upon is that there. Uh, there isn't a lot of like modern representation in terms of short films. A lot of them are, those are probably the hardest to find of any documentary shorts, live action shorts, animated shorts. Uh, routinely, I actually leave those out of when I'm uh, doing my predictions list because I can just never find them. There, there are times where local theaters or maybe a chain will show them all in a feature length runtime. But as far as getting them in front of modern audiences, say for the occasional one popping up on Netflix or maybe even YouTube, um, they're not the easiest to find. I understand maybe it's not the most profitable thing for a studio to be making all these different short films and like campaigning for them. But I would like if uh, bigger streaming services, Netflix, HBO, put a little bit more emphasis on shorts and especially around Oscar season. A lot of times that's where some of the, uh, I don't want to say the better talent, but a lot of times that's where a lot of untapped talent or unrecognized talent really can be found. Speaking of your Oscar predictions, that's one thing that I do look forward to every year. You email me every year with your Oscar predictions 
And that's always a great thing to, uh, to me. It's always, I get that email. Oh, it's Oscar season. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. No, you're, you're one of the first people I, I show it to. I show it to Zach and to you. And it's all to like the people who I know, like know what they're talking about in terms of these sort of sorts of things. Uh, because you'll also send me yours and say like, this is why I think this one's going to win or uh, the publicity for this one. It's, it's it's not just sending each other these lists. It's there's actual discourse in it. Exactly, and that's the kind of thing that I thrive on as well. Brendan, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today, to be on this show, and to share all of your thoughts on the Oscars, your experiences um, on the Gilded Age, and once again, the name of your YouTube channel. It's uh, Make Dash The Dash Line Films. The line is a filmmaking term for all you you cinephiles out there. Uh, so that's where that comes from. And you'll find a collection of shorts on there with more to come. So uh, it's an ongoing project. It's less of like like a YouTuber sort of endeavor and more of just almost like a collection. So the uploading is a bit sporadic, but I do have more shorts uh, on the back burner that will be coming out soon. And, and thank you for, for letting me uh, plug that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And definitely check that YouTube channel out because there is some great content on there. So looking forward to seeing more coming there. All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, until next Oscar season, keep on screening. Thank you. Same to you. All right. That was the conversation that Brendan and I had together. And once more, you can check out his work on YouTube at Make the Line Films. And with that, let's pivot toward the poll results for this episode. So when I was getting sick a couple of weeks ago and shivering with the chills like a pimp in a cathedral, I still put out on my socials the following question. If you had a pick, which world of Julian Fellows would you spend a day in? There were six votes over on Twitter, with half of them going to Downton Abbey, two for the 2001 film Gosford Pack, and one for the Gilded Age. But on Facebook, Gilded Age did better with four votes, with Downton Abbey racking up five. So that brings Downton Abbey as the top choice with a total of seven, Gilded Age in second place with five, and Gosford Pack trailing in third place with two votes. Thanks to everyone who played along, and keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMendoza1974. And if it's easier, you can always just shoot me a quick email, silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that brings us to the trivia segment. And to reiterate, it doesn't matter when you send in your answer. Doesn't matter what episode you're listening to, if it's farther back or if it's the most recent one. Answer any trivia question at any time, and you will get a movie-related meme with a personalized greeting and a shout-out in the next episode, no matter what. And no strings attached if you have music you want to promote, a website, a podcast, a YouTube channel, a book. Say the word, and you got it. And as I always want to be sure to confirm, I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names just in case it makes anyone feel uncomfortable, which is why I always do first name and last initial. But if you say otherwise, then full names it is. So two weeks ago, right before the Oscars, the question was, who hosted the ceremony the most number of times? Bob Hope, Johnny Carson, or Billy Crystal? And the answer is Bob Hope, who hosted 18 times between 1940 and 1978, and that does include both radio and TV MC duties. Billy Crystal hosted the second highest number of times with nine, and Johnny Carson surprisingly only hosted five. 
Just five. I know, right? Shoutouts are in order to Tina G, Amici I, and Chris from the Movie Psycho. And congrats on correctly answering Bob Hope to Mike W, Gail I, Trevor T, and Ed I. Thank you, one and all, and movie-themed memes are on their way. And if any other listeners would like to get involved with the trivia, as I always say, there's no such thing as too late. Here is this week's trivia question. The Gilded Age stars Christine Baranski as Agnes Van Ryan. Baranski sang and danced to a number of ABBA songs with Meryl Streep and Julie Walters in what 2008 film version of a stage musical? Hint, there was a 2018 sequel. Name this 2008 movie. Send your answers over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode or any episode that you've listened to, get in contact. As for a preview of what's to come in the near future, there are more guests lined up to talk about different films. 2022 is a big year for anniversaries of the original release dates of some pretty heavy hitters, including, but not limited to, The Godfather, Blade Runner, Singing in the Rain. How's that for a Motley crew? Again, you'll find more info on my socials, so that's all in the planning stages. And that wraps up episode 47. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and I'd be eternal in your debt if you could just take a second to rate and or review this show on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Good Pods, whatever platform you're listening to this on. It's always a help in terms of boosting the show's visibility, and I'm always happy to get honest feedback. I'm always open to any suggestions for future episodes. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the sounds of every Downton Abbey fan I know finding out that the second feature film is coming out in just a few short weeks as of today's recording.